Okay, we'd like to invite up our final panelist to the stage. Real quick as they're coming up, one event that most people don't know we host is called Capital Con. We only do it once a year, and if you've ever seen TED Talks, a real short 10, 15 minute talks, in Capital Con is where we get 20 to 30 professionals on stage who have all raised $100 million plus in their career, and they get 10 minutes to tell you their biggest secret to how they raised $100 million plus. And that's a one day event, it's only standalones, we don't have any discussion panels, and it's just rapid fire ideas from 20, 25 different brains that are veterans in raising capital. And if you think about how much time it would take you to go and find those people, figure out who they are, invite them all to have a half hour cup of coffee, you're getting 30 hours of your time in that six to seven hours of that day and a ton of ideas you'll be able to use. That's also the point of this event, 75 investors on stage over the two days. To actually get family offices to reply to your emails and phone calls, we know how hard that is. Uh, and then get them to actually show up and be at the coffee meeting with you and pick their brain and hear what they're investing in. You know, it'd probably take you 100 hours to get those meetings booked and another 30 to actually sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. And that's what we're trying to simulate for you uh, over the day and a half. For this panel, we're really trying to focus on, you know, billion dollar plus multifamily offices, give you their perspective day to day. Many of you have something where if you could just get one or two multifamily offices on board, every time their client list grows, your allocation might grow from them. Other of you have gotten wealth management firms as clients, but not in a multifamily office yet. And many of you uh, may not have ever met with a multifamily office before that's a billion dollars plus. So hearing about how institutionalized they are is going to be part of this panel as well. So uh, Jonathan, I'm glad to have you back speaking with us again today. Can you uh, maybe introduce yourself first? We'll go down the line with just a quick, quick intro each. Great. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I'm Jonathan Bergman. I'm the president of TAG Associates. We are a New York City-based multifamily office. We oversee more than $8 billion for about 110 families. I'll do the math for you. It's $75 million per family. Um, we have two service offerings. One is portfolio management allocating to external unaffiliated money managers. And of our $8 billion, more than one-third is, is in alternative investments. The other side of our house is family office services where we provide bookkeeping and bill payment and taxes, estate planning, uh, aircraft and aviation management, property management to our families. So we effectively function as a uh, a single family office to 110 families. Our clients are generally high net worth and single family offices that use us for infrastructure. Great. And uh, Julie's our next speaker. Uh, she was supportive of the first year we came to Miami. We did a 350 person super summit and then it grew a bit larger each year, but she was really helpful in helping us get oriented here in Miami when we moved the offices here. So if you want to introduce yourself. Sure. Um, can you hear me? Okay, great. First of all, congratulations to Richard Wilson. As he just said, he started this first uh, inaugural event with 350, and I think you said you're up to 850, and just the diversity of the group that's here, the content, um, the, the energy is truly amazing. So congratulations, Richard. Very proud of you. Um, again, I'm Julie Neitzel. I'm a partner with We Family Offices. We're one of the largest family offices here in, in Miami. We work with 70 families. Half of them are U.S., half of them are non-U.S. We advise on over $12 billion of family capital. 
We have about 50 professionals that work in our firm between our offices in Miami and New York. I've been involved in the family office area for over 20 years. I started and ran a single family office. And then for the last 15 or so years, I've really dedicated my time and effort to the multi-family office sector, which continues to evolve. Um, in the work that we do, we work very closely with our families on their investment planning areas, but also holistically around financial, wealth transfer planning, tax matters, family philanthropy, and governance. Great. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Pierre, um, who you might have seen at a past Super Summit. He was the one who had the quote of, you know, in the last couple of years, I don't think I've ever done a deal with somebody I didn't already know, you know, for a long time. Uh, also, I want to point out that uh, they recently rebranded their firm. And when we have the one-liners on stage, some people actually take action on that and create a one-liner. Maybe some just don't want to or don't think it matters. Um, but what's even more resistant of people is changing their branding. They're like, no, I like my my Greek god name or Wilson Capital, but no one knows what you do, or ABC Capital, and no one knows what you do, et cetera. And nobody wants to change it because they've raised $8 million or $92 million, and everyone knows them as XYZ Capital. It's always an excuse, like, oh, my partner will never approve that. But uh, Sarity Partners changed their brand because the initials of their brand was about uh, the founder of the firm. But they decided, you know what, it means a lot to us and we respect them, but it doesn't communicate our values. It doesn't communicate anything to our potential client that's transparent and apparent. And so at $10 billion in assets with hundreds of clients, they decided to rebrand. So I think that takes the excuse off the table for anyone who thinks they're too far down the road to have a name that kind of helps you attract clients more. So I thought that was kind of a cool background story on Pierre, if you want to introduce yourself. Thank you, Richard, and thank you for a fine event again. And just to completely undo the money we spent on a branding agency to come up with that name, and my marketing person hates it when I say this, but you will never forget the name if you remember we took the sin out of sincerity. <laughs> <laughs> don't, repeat, don't repeat that when my marketing people are around, please. <laughs> anyway, I spend about half of my week on uh, family matters, uh, private investments, and, and, the, and the mechanics of... Uh, the fact that I was born lucky into, into my mother's family and my father's family uh, and, and, and built a few companies and took them public on my own, but, but um, that's about half of any given week. The other half is, is spent uh, as, a, as a partner and, and significant equity owner in, in Serity Partners. We're about 200 people uh, in nine offices nationwide. We manage about $26 billion um, for about 2,000 clients. If you do the math, uh, I will tell you, don't look at that 10 million-ish number. Look at $6.5 million. Um, 95% of our clients are five and ten million dollar guys and gals that are working hard in life, building their, their careers, uh, working in retirement, uh, living through retirement, and we got their back financially, uh, and that's what we do. Um, uh, I run the family office practice uh, within that group. We have about a hundred clients who uh, have more than a hundred million net worth and about a dozen who have more than a billion net worth. We provide a variety of family office services. Hope a lot of them with their private direct investments. And I'll just get it out now. I, I will never introduce a private direct investment to a client. That sort of breaks my fiduciary obligations, I feel, as a fanatical fiduciary. But I do work with a lot of them to help them do it right, to get the right uh, structure put together and so on. So anyway, that's me. Great. Thanks, Pierre. And uh, Paul is one of the co-founders uh, from Twin Focus Capital, uh, which is growing by about a billion dollars a year, and I think is about uh, $7.5 billion in assets now. If you want to introduce yourself further, Paul, and just kind of describe what kind of differentiates your uh, family office. Um, sure. I don't know if I can compete with the sin and sincerity. 
we, we take the douche out of fiduciary. How it's a bad that? joke. Um, so, <laughs> um, I founded Twin Focus about 15 years ago. I was previously at um, UBS, and uh, I had a vision for you know to create something different, and special. Uh, we work with about 40 families globally. Uh, we're one of the only firms that truly works with can, tr can truly work with global clients. We have a, an office in London as well. We're registered with the FCA and. Uh, we work in Europe and, and throughout. Um, and yeah, I mean, very similar to a lot of these folks, we provide these families with a single family office solution. Um, 70 plus percent of our clients are investment managers, so we work with you know, a lot of private equity, hedge fund, we're kind of the doctor's doctor in that respect. Um, and then we work with a fair amount of, uh, of entrepreneurs. So as Richard said, he kind of undersold me. We're growing our business about one to two billion a year, adding four to six families globally. Um, and you know, it's an exciting time for family offices. So, Great, thank you. And uh, Candace has spoken a few times at our Super Summit. It's been helpful getting additional uh, families and speakers to our event. So if you want to introduce yourself, Candace. Sure. Um, I am uh, Chief Investment Officer of L Investments. We're a family office based between New York and Dubai. Um, and I'm also Chairman of Salsano Group. Uh, which is so self-made Italian billionaire that's married into a billionaire family in Panama, so it's somewhat of a merger between two families. And uh, the family I'm CIO of, we've got like a diverse asset allocation across um, hedge funds, private equity, fixed income, um, and some oil and gas royalty trusts. And then the family I'm chairman of, he does uh, a lot of direct investing, so um, like that. Great. So usually when I give these types of instructions, most of the panelists just ignore them. But if we can uh, keep the answer to this first one just a couple words long, just to give the audience an idea, where do you spend 80% of your calendar time? Where do you feel like the lion's share of your time is spent uh, within your business? If you want to start, uh, John, and then we can move down the line. Sure. Well, I don't spend 80% of my time on any one activity and maybe breathing, but probably not even that high. Um, you know, I spend most of my time thinking about clients, and but when I'm thinking about clients, I'm thinking about you know their unique situations, their problems and issues, and ways to resolve them. But I'm also thinking about their investment portfolios, and then within that, I'm thinking about the investments on our on our platform. Um, you know, it's about a hundred, hundred fifty investments on our, on our investment platform. And in between that, I'm spending time, I oversee the private equity and private debt portfolios at TAG Associates, so I spend time meeting with managers and doing diligence on direct deals and co-investments in private equity funds. Great. Julie? Uh, I just want to add a little um, commentary about company names, seeing that you brought it up here. We started our firm seven years ago, and, and one of the most challenging things, and I've done this several times in my career, is coming up with a name for a business. And WE stands for Wealth Enterprise, and the reason we selected that name is the types of families we work with, they've accumulated enough family wealth, enough family capital, that it's like it is an enterprise, and so to help them apply the best practices of some of the most successful businesses that operate in the world is really the approach of how we, we try to work with our families. In specific response to your question, Richard, where do I spend 80% of my time? Well, because we work with families, it's a very dynamic activity. There is always something happening on any given day that's planned and unplanned with a client. So investment activity is fundamental. To me, that's the economic foundation that's key critical 
for every one of our families that we work with. But there's a lot of other risk areas that also they need help with, whether it's tax uh, optimization, whether it's making sure that they have the proper personal estate planning and wealth transfer planning documents in place. You can do an amazing job with investments, but if you haven't focused on how taxes impact that investment portfolio or how the wealth is supposed to transfer most efficiently, you may miss an important opportunity and create a great risk for that investment portfolio. Right, great, thank you. Uh, Pierre? Um, I, I, trying to uh, come up with an 80% number is not possible, but, but uh, I think across both my sort of personal family side and, and the business side, uh, uh, my day job side, I think the biggest, the place I spend most time, uh, which is inefficient, and I wish I, I didn't, but I, but I, I, I like to do it actually, uh, is, is trying to um, respond to the number of people who call up and, and send a, an opportunity of some kind in a thoughtful way while saying no. <laughs> because I don't do a lot of these things, but I, I get a lot, and, and I feel that I should at least try to be a little constructive in, 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 in not just say no, goodbye, or, or try not to or not even respond. Um, and so that ends up being a lot of my time. But, but the more valuable, practical time is, is as an advisor to a bunch of companies, both personally and, and in the business side, where I'm on the board as a board observer, or in a couple of cases, an equity owner. Uh, helping people grow their businesses, that's my passion. Great. So, uh, Paul, I guess nobody spends 80% of their time on anything we're hearing so far. So, what do you spend the most time on? 80%. Um, um, in an airplane. I spend 80% of my time in an airplane. Hopefully, I have Wi-Fi. Um, no, in all seriousness, I, I spend most of my time directing traffic. You know, I think the, uh, the last presentation talking about delegating, you know, I, I think I delegate pretty well. I've got a great team. I empower them. But um, you know, being a CEO, you're you know you're constantly kind of directing traffic and putting fires out. So um, you know, part of that is on the client side, part of that's on the HR side, part of that's on the investment side. But lots of directing traffic. Great. And uh, Candice, what do you spend the most time on? Well, uh, unfortunately, I get more than 500 emails a day from different managers pitching us or or current managers that we're invested in following up. Um, so. You know, these days I go. I wish we could go back to the days where we had fax machines because you didn't have so much daily incoming traffic. Um, so I probably spend a good 80% of my time because it's every day 500 emails onslaught, and every night I've got to spend an hour or two. Last night I think I was up till two or three in the morning just making sure I got through those 500 emails before I ended the day because our dinner ended late. Um, so that's definitely something that's consistent every day. It's either going through those 500 emails or reading documents attached to those emails or doing conference calls with managers. So I'd say that's a good 80% consistently. And then the other activities, you know, they vary. You've got to deal with accountants, lawyers, you're doing due diligence on something, but it's not every day. Um, so if someone has a solution for how to get rid of those 500 emails, that would be amazing. Sure. I think uh, many people here in the audience might be trying to attract the same type of quality clients that you all have been able to attract and work with. So in terms of kind of the life cycle of meeting a potential client until the client uh, actually engages and become a client, what's kind of the, the normal period of gestation there where you have to get to know them, you go to where they live, they come to your office, you have phone calls, etc. A couple people want to comment on that time period so others in the room can see for that level of a wealthy family what should be expected? You know, there's, there's no answer. I mean, there's no, you know, I, I have, I had a client join us this year who I've been, who I met six and a half years ago. And I've 
had a conversation with him at least annually, if not more, more regularly. Um, I had a client who sold a business at the end of, I had a prospect who sold a business at the end of August, called me after Labor Day and signed an agreement in October and it was a nine-figure account. You know, it shouldn't be that easy and the other guy shouldn't be so damn hard. So there's no, there, there's no right answer and there's no, there's no right path. But, you know, sometimes there, the truth is, is there a need, is there urgency, right? Uh, the gentleman who sold the business was sitting with a, a nine-figure balance at a local bank, right? He needed to move that money. He needed to get invested in the S&P 500, went up every day, and he was sweating because of it. He needed to act. The, the gentleman who's just signed with us after six and a half years, basically it took his wife insisting that he hire us because he's in his mid to late 70s. He needs an outlet pass. We're the best outlet pass, but he didn't want to give up control. So we figured out a, a construct where he would not, he wouldn't necessarily seed he would cede a portion of the portfolio to us, retain the rest of it, but we do oversight over everything. So that appeased his spouse and made him comfortable as well. But that took six and a half years. Okay, great. Anyone else want to comment on that, Julie? Just uh, the, the only other thing I might add to what Jonathan said is it's important to really cast a wide net of different prospective clients you're talking to because the timing of when they make decisions is always uncertain. I can tell you the extremes on, on my end with, with my practice is I had an individual come in last year, actually about this time. He had a trigger event. He needed to hire advisors. And literally, we met on one day, and he said, well, you put together an engagement agreement and came back the next day. And, and that was highly unusual. We, we checked them out to make right. sure there wasn't you know, anything funny going on there, but it was a very uh, credible and, and serious individual. And then the other extreme is I recently did some work uh, over the course of this year for somebody that I did work for 20 years ago. So, you know, the, the timing of when people make decisions is, is, is varied, but I'll agree with what Jonathan said. If there's a need, there's a trigger event, there's a call to action, that's sure. typically when they're going to make that decision to work with you. Sure. Okay. And uh, for uh, Paul or Pierre, uh, what do you think is the best question if there's a private investor here, uh, angel investor, they're looking to engage a multifamily office, what's the smartest question that someone could ask a multifamily office that they're vetting where, you know, if you had to make sure you ask one question during that interview process and you're meeting with, you know, three to four different multifamily offices, you know, what's a smart question that everybody should be asking or most, most clients should be asking, but most of your clients don't know to ask it, but you know it would help kind of weed out some providers in the marketplace, perhaps. Yeah, so um, I, think, I think the absolute wrong question to ask a family office advisor, and I'll start there, is let me see your performance. Um, you know, for us, we work with a lot of investment managers, so as much as I would like to take their performance track record and call it my own, it wouldn't be fair. And, you know, we, a lot of our clients come to us with legacy investments and we don't tell them, sell your shit and buy my shit. You know, we, we kind of do the work on what they own. Um, you know, just to dovetail on the last question, I mean, people do business with people like themselves, right? People do business with people they like. 
you know, for us, we don't try to be all things to all people, and we actually encourage our prospective clients when they come in. We say, go meet with all the competition, and in fact, I'll give you a list of the ones that I think are the best, because when you come back, I want you to know what you got. And so in terms of the right question to ask, show me the work. Show me the memos you write. Show me the actual work, the work product that you deliver to your clients. Right. I remember being on a phone call with you, uh, you know, on a train ride recently. There was a $100 million family, and they said what they wanted, and it was just kind of a, a strange request. You're like, yeah, that's not us. So, you know, we're happy to keep in touch, but don't have to be all fit, things you know? to all people. And, you know, I've, I've gotten better at this in my business when you start out, you know, and you got to pay for the analysts and the Bloomberg. You take any, anybody and small clients, big clients, big pain in the ass, small pain in the ass. And today, you know, we're much, much more selective because I like to say that we've only got so many seats on our bus. I don't discount our fees. If you want a discount, go someplace else. I know you'll be back. And I know what it costs to do it right. So, and once you discount, you just never get it back. So, anyone else want to comment on the best question for an investor to ask uh, an MFO they might be meeting with or vetting? I guess I would just maybe amplify a little bit what you said. Coming to the table, coming to the first meeting with an understanding of what it is you really need, what you're looking for. Um, and, and it's not a simple answer. Um, it's not returns, as you just mentioned. It's, it's not, I just need to get my taxes done properly or tax strategy. I spent a lot of time working with potential clients to understand what it is they really do need and, and how we might be able to, or maybe not. We, we do not take a bunch of clients. So understanding, thinking really thoughtfully about what you are looking for before you come in can be very helpful. Sure. A lot of times that changes, yeah. right? You, you walk in the door thinking, you know, I have a friend, I mentioned this yesterday, I have a friend that says your tagline should be twin focus. You come for the financial advice, but you stay for the little situations. You know, so it, it changes. You know, you, you walk in the door, you think you want some fancy portfolio, and in the end of the day, you really need your problem solved. And, and then, of course, it evolves over time. Uh, five, 10, 20 years later, your needs are different. What you're looking for is different. Uh, your kids are in the picture maybe as adults and so on. So, uh, yeah, you, you need to find that flexibility and you need to understand what you're what you're looking for as best you can now but expect it to change and evolve as you said and there's, a there's, a there's a cost to do it right yeah. I had a, I had a recent client that signed up and before he signed up he said to me you know, what am I missing what what should I be asking or what am I discounting I said frankly you're discounting the cost to do this right right uh, so Candace I know you're in touch with and have a network of probably a hundred billion dollar plus families because uh, you're well, you know, you're well connected. So what have you learned is key and central to building genuine relationships, getting to know them, and who do you see them doing business with and why, if you can provide any advice or insights for the audience here today on that? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of things with families come down to trust and building a relationship. Uh, and I think that takes time. And, you know, everyone wants to come up to someone and pitch them. And I'd say try to build a relationship first because... Uh, if someone has a net worth of over a billion dollars, they're probably getting pitched by thousands of people. Um, so you really have to get to know them as a person and, and build that relationship and build the trust. And I think people generally do people business with people who they like. Um, so as much as we all, we can all run the numbers, we can all have analysts look at the IRRs and the returns, um, but at the end of the day, there's something more esoteric where when someone likes someone and they trust them and they trust their ethics and they trust their values and they know them well. Um, and our family office, we've done business with people where we know them and we know their parents. Um, we've co-invested with other very well-known billionaire families, but we knew them for two years before we ever co-invested with them. Um, so I think, I think that's really the key you know, takeaway is 
this is a relationship business and um, you know you don't want to rush into something um, you know it's you know try to get married don't try to sleep with a girl on the first night <laughs> Julie what I would add also to what Candace said is be authentic you know at the end of the day trust is important but people are really your clients are looking for opinions and advice and guidance uh, they don't want yes people they will respect you more if you are, are true to whatever your point of view is and you have to have courage sometimes um, to, to disagree with them um, because I work with many strong entrepreneurial clients I work with clients that are successful billionaires in their own right and and honestly you have to have the courage to to be straightforward in terms of your point of view and why you think something may or may not make sense for them and not be fearful of uh, confronting them on an issue in a respectful way I endorse that opinion 100% and that not only applies to clients that applies to prospects and that's how the prospect is going to get to know you because there are plenty of well-dressed yes men out there but in the end they'll all they want is your fee and they'll let you drive off the cliff and I'm not going to let you drive off the cliff I may disagree with you I'll try to do it politely I'll attempt to do it logically but but I'm I'm not going to let you make a mistake and I'll tell clients that and prospects that 24 hours a day I, I actually recently had a prospective client that spent two years doing due diligence on us and like every firm in the country and a large half a billion dollar family and he came back to me after two years and he said um, I'm hiring you guys because number one you guys do more work than anyone else and he said number two he said you ever see that that movie pretty woman I said yeah he said you know that scene where Richard Gere goes back into the store with Julie Roberts and he says I need more kiss ass he goes, every firm I went to, they were kissing my ass. And he said, you know, you told me two years ago that I had all these horrible ideas about restaurants and, you know, and, uh, you know, all these, this hedge fund portfolio I had. And, and I remember two years ago, he said, you know, I built this great hedge fund portfolio with this manager in New York. And I said, you know, I, he, you're trying to outperform the S&P. You should just put the money in the S&P. And he looked at me and said, you're going to charge me the same amount of money to put the money in the S&P at the Vanguard? And I said, yep. Well, today he became a client, and uh, we, we sold all the hedge funds. We, we actually just put all the money in the S&P. Uh, not all of it, but a good chunk of it. But he, you know, he appreciated the no BS approach. And you know, to your point, you know, whether a prospective client or it's a client, they're eventually going to find out the truth. And you've know, you got to do it politely. You, know, you can't tell them they're idiots. But um, even though you may think it, you know, I, I had a friend that once said to me, Paul, you remind me of you know, the parent in the front seat that's driving where you have your clients in the back seat with the fake steering wheel. So. Great. I mean, I think I, ironically, uh, it's kind of strange that when you're saying something might feel uncomfortable, like borderline rude, or you're going to get, you know, that's going to hurt the relationship. It might be the most valuable thing that you could give to them. So I think it's kind of counterintuitive. Just to give you a quick example of that. It, was, it wasn't an uncomfortable comment, but um, the daughter, grown daughter, mid, mid-20s of, of one of my large clients, came to me and said, look, mom wants me to, to quit and join her on our philanthropic and private investment business. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. I think you need to build your own life, your own career. And if you stop now at 26 and join your mom, game's over in some sense. And then I had to get on the phone. I called, I called up mom immediately and said, mom, your daughter called. I understand you're talking about this with her. I don't really think it's the right thing for her. I'm sorry. But you got to do that. You got you to keep them from driving off a cliff. Yep. 
So um, does anyone else have a counterintuitive lesson on top of that one that we just talked about that's something that maybe other people growing a multifamily office or wealth management firm or an investment management practice would have to learn the hard way over a decade and something that's counterintuitive about either attracting clients, adding value to them, working with them, growing your firm, you know, to such a large size over time? One of the, uh, I've, had, I've had the good fortune of having really great clients and, and many great opportunities, but one of the more memorable meetings that I had with one of my clients was a younger client, an inheritor of, of a meaningful uh, inheritance, and we were working on trying to understand her spending her and do some financial planning. And what became very apparent is the spend rate that she was, her run rate of spending was very high. And so we did a, we did a capital sufficiency analysis, a Monte Carlo simulation, that basically pointed to the fact, this client was 34, that she kept spending at the current rate, she was gonna deplete her liquid assets in about 10 years. Now that's a really hard message to deliver to a client, but it was a really important message. I still remember her crying during the meeting when the realization hit her that, wow, I'm heading down a path that's not gonna be a good path for me. Uh, but again, you have to have the courage to you know, respectfully deliver this information so that the client can make a, an informed decision of how she's living her financial life. And sure enough, she, she started using a, a personal budgeting tool. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with www.mint.com, which is a really great little tool that will link into your, your checking account, your credit cards. And, and she turned the corner on her spending. And, and so that was very profound. That meeting was probably 10 or 15 years ago, and I still very, very vividly remember that conversation. Great, thank you. All right, so um, we're gonna open it up for questions from the audience. If we wanna start uh, running a microphone or two to people, if you wanna raise your hand, we'll get that headed over towards you. Uh, JJ's coming there. Um, I, I do work out of London. I notice a lot of the family offices I deal with uh, in Europe who are like 200, 100, 300 year old uh, I look at investing multi-currency, multi-country. I don't hear that at all from, from you guys. Are you seeing that at all in the United States? Uh, uh, look, I would say there is a bias for, for families wherever they are in the world. And they, especially in America, they tend to have more assets in America. I think if you're an American family, because on the alternative investment landscape, most of the fund managers are still US-based. Um, so there might be some Europe private equity funds and et cetera. But if you look at the, the capital under management in the, in the fund management industry, it's probably 80% still based in America. I remember I went to Hong Kong once to look at Asian managers. This was a while ago, it was maybe 10 years ago. Um, and there weren't a lot of very large managers over there. So, you know, so I think when you're investing in um, the financial industry, um, there is a bias and you're going to be over allocated to the US. And if you're a US family, a lot of families don't have foreign exposure. Um, partly it's because the legal regulation and the environments overseas, they don't understand it. So, you know, families hear horror stories of when people have invested in Argentina or when the oligarchs took over Russia and if you co-invested there, then the government repossessed your assets and you were pretty much out of luck. 
um, and people in the public markets who inve that invested in UCOS, they had a similar experience. So because of those type of experiences, families have become risk averse to regulatory environments and governance environments that they that don't match the level you have, say, in the United States and Europe. Um, and that's led to them just to have a concentration. And I'd say even beyond that, if you look at a family that's made their money in a certain sector, uh, like a lot of real estate families, you'll still find that 80% of their assets are in real estate. And it might be so concentrated that it's real estate in uptown Manhattan. Um, so it's really not diversified. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of American families really need to think about because you do want to have, we live in a global economy and there are so many geopolitical risks and you really do want to have diversification globally across jurisdictions, but it takes a lot of effort um, to get that portfolio that is diversified. So the family I work for, and one of the families I work for is fairly diversified globally, but it, it takes a lot of effort on our end because you're dealing with different regulatory environments and you have to analyze different risks in, in different ways than you do if you're just US focused. I think, it, I think it's a, just real quick, I think it's a huge UK and Europe thing just because you know, the countries are so close, you're used to different currencies. Our US clients, we're, you know, we're 30, 40% globally diversified, but we just took on a mandate from a, you know, kind of a famous like rock star guy and the, the trust showed up at our door a couple months ago and they were specific. They wanted a third in, in UK and two thirds in Euro, right? And so we, you know, we had to develop a solution around that, think through which products were appropriate and take into account taxes and everything else, so. Great, thank you. Uh, question in the back there. And thank you very much for your insights. Quick question, for family offices that want to start investing or be more active on direct investments, could you share with, could you share with us, let's say, how much on an asset allocation perspective one should allocate to liquid assets and to direct investments? Let's say on your views, let's say, where's that sweet spot? Well, well, certainly you have to start with understanding the cash flow needs, much like your uh, uh, client who is spending too much money. You've you got to have enough money not in those private investments because you've got to assume they're worth nothing forever uh, once you've put that money in an illiquid private direct deal. So you've got to make sure you understand your cash flows and, and you have more than enough to survive the crisis of whatever might happen in the next 10, 20, 30 years in your life. A after that, I, I would still argue that it probably should be a pretty pretty small fraction, uh, you know, uh, I don't even want to give a number, but, but not large, generally. Yeah, I, I, I'll I, give you a number. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we don't do more than 1% in any investment in which we're passive. For any direct deal, direct co-investment, 1% where you're passive. If you're active, different story, but 1% is our limit. But again, it really depends client to client. The old saying, if you've met one family office, you met one family office, right? So some clients have, a, we have a, one of our largest families, Latin family has 80, 90% of their portfolio in pretty illiquid stuff, but they're making $150 million a year in a big commodities business. So it's, a, you know, everybody's different, so. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And I think, um, you know, look, in terms of, of direct investments, you can co-invest with other families or you could co-invest with a private equity fund and you might be passive, you might be not be leading the effort, but you know you have a good counterparty, you've got a reliable counterparty, and um, you're confident that you're getting a return. 
um, or you're invested in, in real estate and there's distributions every year and you're getting cash flow. So I don't think you can make a hard and fast rule and say, oh, if we're not running the deal, we only want to put a small amount in because it might be more efficient and more effective, especially if you're starting a family office or a smaller family office or you've got a small team, which most family offices do, um, to, to utilise that. And we co-invest with other families and we trust the counterparty. Um, we're happy for them to lead. And then um, the billionaire family in Panama that I work for, he's taken a few co-investors into some things. He doesn't charge any fees. He covers all the expenses and um, he's just let other people participate with him. So... I think, um, you know, I think so long as the interests align and if it's another, when we've co-invested with other families, you know, they haven't been charging us fees and stuff like that and when other families co-invest with us, it's the same way. So long as it's a structure like that where the interests are directly aligned, um, then I think it's good if you trust the counterparty that they're running the deal because you might not have knowledge on that sector. So, you know, but I think you still need to have at least... Um, you want to have some of your liquid portfolio in cash um, and then other liquid securities and you want to be diversified across, you know, across the liquid spectrum as well. So you still want to keep at least on minimum, and like at least I'd say 10% in, in, in kind of liquid alternatives and have that diversified across, you know, cash and other equities and, and other liquid alternatives. I've seen a big difference with my clients if they're worth a couple hundred million dollars and they're more likely to want control. Uh, if they're worth, you know, $15 million, they might be okay with some more passive and put more in the public markets and trust their multifamily office to allocate for them and just focus on earning more money in their business. But also if it's first generation, early second generation, many of those families are entrepreneurial DNA. They want a bit more control. If it's third or fourth generation, they don't want to lose grandpa's money and they diversify for the extended family a bit more often. But I've also seen that when it's not public market, but maybe the company is doing 50 million, 100 million a year in revenue and it's a 30-year-old company, even a family that wants control, if they say it's a $100 million a year company and you know, 10 million, 20 million EBITDA, some families can get their brains around, okay, that's a high-quality company. I see them growing to an exit. And sometimes families make an exception uh, on that. Uh, we're running out of time here, and I actually didn't ask a single question I think that we were supposed to ask on the panel because I just was curious about your thoughts on those other questions. So I want to give each panelist uh, time to say some of the thoughts you might have prepared on one of the questions or a final thought or something you wanted to emphasize with like uh, some notes you might have taken in preparing for the panel today to kind of leave the audience with uh, one last comment before we wrap it up. Uh, does anyone on the panel want to start with, a, with that last comment? I'll give you my, my take. Um, I, yeah, over the next 10 years, I want to take equity risk and, and, and just with my risk assets, I'm pushing more toward private investments. I'm pushing more toward single investments that are alpha generative. I don't want as much financial market risk over the next 10 years as I've had over the last 10 years. So I'm pushing more into private equity and pushing more into co-investments and direct deals where I believe the drivers of return are, are not, not defined by the financial markets. Which I think is uh, relatively unique for a multifamily office, right? I mean, a lot of people rely upon private equity fund managers, but emphasizing a lot of energy on going directs. I mean, for most multifamily offices, they, they leverage the fund manager platforms and it's more efficient to do so, right? It's certainly more efficient. <laughs> Right. But, but we think there are better returns in the more select deals. Okay, great. Uh, Julie? 
And I agree with Jonathan, out of the 12 billion that we advise on, about 2 billion of it is in direct, illiquid, less liquid type of investments. And when you look at you know, forward capital market assumptions, that those will be the drivers of growth. However, the biggest challenge is that's also the area where there's the biggest manager dispersion in terms of outcome. That's our job. Right. And so, you know, picking, you know, having either you do the due diligence or work with a, a sponsor or fund manager that's doing exhaustive due diligence is, is really important. And it's not only about having a really sound investment strategy, you also need to be able to manage a business if it's a fund. I see a lot of first-time fund managers approaching our firm and individuals who may have had, you know, decades of experience in a particular sector, and they've decided to go off on their own and, and create a fund business. It is a business. It is a separate uh, activity, and it's really important that not only can you be a, an astute investor, but also an astute manager of your business. Great. Thank you. I, I would just make one sort of tangential point. As the speaker on the stage before we came up here made an interesting point, which is if you're starting a company, don't come to me or make sure you know how you're going to exit. And I want to take a contrarian view to that for a minute on my personal investment side. I am lucky to have been born into two families that um, created their heritages over decades of holding one company with growing EBITDA. I look today for just a few people that I can help uh, grow their businesses without an exit plan, not for the capital gain, but for the growing cash flow on a very long-term basis. And that's a little different than many people. I, that to me is much more enjoyable than trying to make the quick pop capital gain. Right, great. I've seen uh, differences. I know some of you have clients in uh, Asia and Southeast Asia, and I've seen over there people do hold on to their businesses much longer due to the capital markets and just generational family planning versus in America where the private equity markets, you know, they're calling you every week to buy your company. Yeah, when exactly. You, you and and I, I have a few Chinese clients. Maybe they've partly taught me that uh, in exactly that sure. way. Yeah. Sure. Great. Uh, Paul? Um, I agree with, you know, everything that's been said. I think, you know, we're living in this world today where it's just harder and harder to find alpha, probably because there's been too many folks like us that have gone to the investment business the last 20 years. Um, and so it's you know just really hard to find alpha in really every asset class today. So you got to be a you know a niche manager, you know on the real estate side. I don't want to be one of 30 guys sitting around the table bidding on assets. You know you got to look for those hairier assets, etc. But I think most importantly um, is you know I used to be a fighter uh, in jujitsu and Muay Thai, and it's you know the coach my coach always said you got to have a plan. You know when you get in the ring you got to have a plan, and it's true you got to have a plan. You know nothing ever goes according to plan, but you got to have a plan. And, you know, because when you're in the heat of the moment, you forget half of what you know, and your adrenaline kicks in, and, but you've got to have a plan. And you've got to have a good team. So. Great. Thank you. Candace? Uh, I'd say um, the one key takeaway for me um, is I have a favorite chart on diversification. And it shows you the past 10 years what was the sector that outperformed the market. And one year it's commodities, one year it's distressed, one year it's timber, one year it's... Um, emerging markets. And so it's something different every year. So I think this chart is a, a really good, you can't chase returns, um, but it's a really good um, model for you want to have a diversified portfolio because every year something different is going to outperform the market. And if you're diversified in good times and in bad times, uh, you're still going to have a decent return threshold. 
Great, thank you. Uh, before we give a round of applause, I just have a, a few quick housekeeping items. Uh, don't forget to check uh, every month or six weeks on familyoffices.com. We're always updating new dates. We have just about all of Q1 uh, booked out with dates for next year. And now that you've experienced the uh, Super Summit and Investor Summits, if you haven't been to one of our workshops before, I'd really encourage you to come to one of those because it's totally different than this. Completely different information, very fast-paced, small group exercises. You get to know the other people in the room. Uh, certain types of our workshops have investors in them and people that run investment management firms. Some are just for investment management firms. But we're offering you know, a dozen events just in the first uh, two and a half months uh, of next year and 30 of them overall, so I'd love to see you there. Some other things that don't cost anything is when you're buying a plane ticket to a major city to meet with a client, just check on our website and see if we have an event coming up. If it's flexible when to meet with a client, you can meet with a client and then come to our events. And what we do is, uh, you know, this event starts painfully early, especially on the second day when people were out late last night. But our other events are not so painful. We start at 10 a.m., we're done at 4, 4.30 p.m. typically. So if you're in the area, you can come from Philadelphia into New York the morning of without getting up at 3.30 in the morning or fly into a regional city that you're nearby. And then you can be back home the same night. So you're not away from your spouse, your kids. Maybe you don't even need to get a hotel room for the night. Just makes it more efficient, less painful for my team, not needing to show up at 4 a.m. to set up, et cetera. So uh, keep that in mind with our events. That's a bit different. Also, two other things. It's free. Most people don't know. You can log into the portal. You can live stream. Uh, our events, uh, if you can't attend in person, or if some team member, it's not worth buying them a plane ticket to come and listen to one panel. You can have them tune in just for a panel or two. We also HD record them. We have 25 conferences and events recorded in the portal uh, in HD that you can listen to and watch. So you can have team members get trained using it. We have our free family office certification and capital raising certification programs. That's free for you as a member. It's not an upsell on you. Uh, we also, for free, will review your materials every three months, which gives you two things, 20 pieces of feedback from us on your materials, and it gets us to know you very well instead of just saying hi here and shaking hands and you telling me you're one-liner, we'll read all your materials and give you 20 pieces of feedback, and then we can keep you in mind for clients I'm serving or different connections for people we can make in the room so we could all collaborate more. So our whole goal is to get your best ROI out of membership. Those are some ways to get your ROI, and we're aligned in that the better value you get here, the more that you're all going to be here next year, and we'll get to know each other over the next three to five years and do medium to long-term business together in a way that's more meaningful than just going to a conference you might go to on average. And I think that's how you really build a community here, and that's what we're trying to do. So for me, I thought this was, uh, no offense to other panelists, but I thought it's one of the better, uh, best panels of the day. So let's give them a big round of applause. Thank you for everybody's attention over the last day and a half. Um, please feel free to check out our exhibitors, which allow us to be here at the Ritz-Carlton on your way out. And thank you for all your attention. I hope to see you in Q1 at one of our workshops. Thank you.